At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Best in Show, the podcast, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KV industry. And I'm joined each and every episode, each and every week with the lovely, talented Bryony Smith, our ARBA standards chair. And she's in Kansas. I'm in California. Bryony, how are you tonight? Well, um, I guess maybe hoping we can dry out. Um, and it's been a long couple of weeks of really unseasonably damp weather here in Kansas, which has made it a little bit of a challenge with raising babies. But, you know, we're slogging through, feeding a lot of hay right now. Well, how do you find your does react to to wet weather? Or is it your bucks as well? Um, they all kind of get a little sluggish. Honestly, I, I've been um, doing some rebreedings and not so much the Dutch. That's never an issue with them. And <laughs> some of the others are, are a little less interested. Um, but the the biggest issue that I find when the weather really changes or when it's very damp is those babies that are kind of just starting to come out of the nest box up into almost weaning age. Um, as you know, any kind of weather change can really be a stressor on them and their sensitive little GI systems. Um, so I've been giving them some daily hay, and that's really helping. Just keeps that fiber going. You know, like like Scott Williamson talked to us a few episodes about, um, that fiber really keeps things moving in their system. So that's been helpful for me. Totally. Like um, Chris Emney, when she does talks on on nutrition and management, she talks about hindgut overload, you know, that, that kind of unique tract uh, for rabbits. And if stuff's not moving, you know, it gets built up, bacteria takes over, and suddenly you've got uh, enteritis, coccidia issues. And you're right. I, I, the same here. We don't, we don't have any rain right now, but when we do get a wet winter, uh, yeah, the babies scour and they, they don't thrive as well. So, um, I, I load them like, I even like straw. I mean, it's really, there's no nutritional value other than it makes you poop and it keeps the, the gut moving. Yep. Hey, and, and that's worth it. I actually went to Dollar Tree yesterday and I bought some of those little plastic baskets and like rigged up some little um, hay feeders. So I got three baskets for a dollar. I got some zip ties. I went to Ace and got a little hobby knife. And I looked at that and thought, I am probably going to cut myself with this. <laughs> sure enough, on the first one, oh. I got a nice little slash in the back of my uh, left index finger. Ouch. But Thank goodness I know myself well enough to stock some first aid supplies. So I butterflied it and we're good to go oh and everyone's God. happy. <laughs> oh, wait, I have to revert back to you at the Dollar Tree. <laughs> Please take a <laughs> selfie next time Brian is at the Dollar Tree. That's pretty good. You know, um, you can get a lot of good rabbit stuff at the Dollar Tree. And actually, when we get close to talking about convention, I'm going to do my $5 convention cleaning Ooh, kit. And the I Dollar like Tree is going to factor in heavily. So stay posted. 
I can't wait because I was into the Dollar Tree for a while. Like, I like me a good deal, all right? But don't buy tape at the dollar store, um, <laughs> batteries, and for whatever reason, you can buy a pregnancy check at, at the checkout line of the Dollar Tree. <laughs> still blows my mind. Yeah, I don't know that I would trust that. But you know what? <laughs> no. Greeting cards are like 50 cents. And they're printed on toilet paper. But yes, they are. Like <laughs> they are cents. not. Okay. They are not. I get greeting cards and um, wrapping paper and bows and stuff there. Nobody knows the difference. Everyone just tears the wrapping paper up anyway. I, I, I give, I'll give you that one. That <laughs> got one there. I'm, I'm excited, though, about your $5. Um, what did you call it? $5 convention list? $5 convention cleaning kit. I like it. I like it. All right, yeah, I can't wait for that. We'll definitely get that closer to convention. Um, so uh, I I don't know what's arrived in your mailbox this week, but uh, out here in California, we got the uh, latest issue of Domestic Rabbits magazine. That's the May-June 2021 issue. It's fantastic. And for a year when... We haven't had a lot of rabbit shows. This is a pretty thick issue with lots of good stuff in it. And I have to give you a nod. I was reading your ARBA standards um, committee chair article, and I love the way you started it or how maybe how Sandra uh, highlighted uh, some of your words in the, in the preface. And it relates back to, you know, uh, stuff on Facebook that gets kind of tossed out there, like the proverbial, hey, does anyone know how to get a, a purple lion head recognized, you know, and then everyone chimes in and it's all bad information. And, and, and you stress like, you know, there's a couple great outlets, reliable, consistent outlets to go to every time you've got a question about standards committee or uh, even broader, you know, RHD, you know, go to the ARB website and, and there's consistent, accurate data there, you know, calling out on Facebook isn't, isn't always the most accurate way of getting that the best information. So a uh, special nod to that. I loved your article. Well, thank you. Yeah, it it's it's kind of like a game of telephone. And I know a lot of people, when they answer these questions, they're really well-meaning. They think they know the answer. But, you know, someone starts with, well, I'm not sure, but... And suddenly someone else latches onto that. Um, yeah, it's like a game of telephone, right? <laughs> right, like, right. So, yeah, I mean, we're always happy to answer your questions. I know it is a complicated process. And there are, you know, a lot of people have questions. I get presenters that ask questions frequently. Um, so, yeah, just just go to the source when you can. We're, we're always here to talk to you and answer questions. And it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a presenter or if you're just someone that, that wants to know more about the process. We're always happy to answer those questions. Um, I would like to give a shout out too to a great article that fellow standards committee chair member Bruce Ormsby wrote about balance. Um, I read it. Excellent as well. Yes. Yes. I looked at that and I thought, this needs to go in the next guidebook. It's a really good article. And, and I would recommend that to anyone who raises any breed or just wants to learn more about rabbits in general. They're, at a point, you do kind of need to train your eye. Um, when you're just starting to learn how to breed, how to judge, um, especially, I mean, your own rabbits before you even get behind a table. Um, and this is one that that I would say, you know, if you're inclined to do such things, um, cut this one out. Or, you know, if you have the ARBA app where you can access all these, screenshot this one and save it. Um, it's really a good one. I totally agree. And, you know, that word balance is really popular and it's tossed around a lot and it's used several different ways. The way that Bruce used it, I I really agree with. It's not he wasn't talking about like the harmonious, you know, uh, um, visual appeal from the outside. He's actually talking like proportion ratio, depth equals width. It's a one to one ratio, and he, he explains with with great photos, you know, how that looks, and that's truly balance. That's the the balance, the proportion of 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 one to one, as we often see in our standards. So yeah, it was very nicely done. Uh, a lot of great pictures and diagrams. And it was a very broad, um, a very broad article. 
Yeah, yeah, it was. Like I said, it it was, applies to any breed, anybody, and, and I would definitely recommend reading and rereading that one. Yeah, so if you guys um, are getting your domestic rabbits magazine in your in your mailboxes this week, next week, sometime around this spring, that's the May June. 2021 issue definitely take a look it's thick it's full of great stuff as always sandra and randy hall and the entire dr committee do a bang up job on it we are incredibly indebted to the that committee uh for their dedication because we are we have an, an amazing magazine every two months full of education and all things rabbits and cabies all right so we're going to roll into our segment two which we do every episode and that's uh you know this time in and you know we've been doing a lot of 90s stuff and early 2000s but we are going to go all the way back to 1967. And the reason is, well, you'll find out later in the episode when we interview our special guest. But 1967 is the year. And Brian, you're going to share some ARBA side stuff in a second, but I'll tell everybody what was going on in the world in 1967. And by the way, I'm really excited because I wasn't around in 1967. So uh, this is not one we have to do it ourselves. Uh, the U.S. president in 1967 was Lyndon Johnson. Uh, in January of that year, the Super Bowl number one uh, was held. That was Green Bay Packers defeating Kansas City Chiefs 35 to 10. That was uh, in the city of LA at the Memorial Coliseum. Uh, January 2nd of 1967, Ronald Reagan, he was actually a movie star, if you didn't know that, um, and future president, he was inaugurated as the governor of California. And February 14th, everyone will know this song, Respect, you know, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, that was uh, recorded by, of course, the late Aretha Franklin. Um, going into August, Thurgood Marshall was confirmed the first African-American justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. September 11th of 1967, the Carol Burnett show premiered on CBS, and that ran for a total of 11 years. That was until March of 1978. Uh, other interesting facts about 1967, McDonald's actually introduced the Big Mac, which of course is still going today. Uh, number one song in 1967, I have to admit that I had to look it up and listen to it. Uh, a Whiter Shade of Pale. It's kind of a snoozer. I'm kind of surprised. And that was by uh, Pro Call Harum. And then number two, everyone knows this song. Uh, number two number, yeah, number two song in 1967 was All You Need Is Love by The Beatles. So, Bryony, what do you have on the rabbit and KV side? Well, I pulled out some Dutch reporters from 1967. They were actually monthly then. Um, so the, the big news there was that the first Youth National Dutch Show was held in 1967. So I'm going to read some snippets from a few different um, issues as we lead up to that. In the February issue, it talks about, um, first and probably most important to the future of our club, we will have a youth division at our show. I hope this will be successful and will become a permanent part of future National Dutch Shows. This show is for the young people and will be run by them. Their advisor will be Clarence Schock, a successful Green County 4-H leader. Youth co-superintendents will be Gary Lewis, Larry Schock, Mike Adams, Bruce Kucharski, Tom Pitstick, Eddie Yound, and Scott Wells. That's like seven people. Youth Secretary <laughs> Mary Jo Schock, Assistants Debbie Russell, Sandy Hoy, Debbie Walker, Diana Southworth, and trophies by Ruth Schock. There are trophies for best of breed, best opposite sex, and best of each color in the youth division. And it solicited donations for those. And it says... Um, because the show was going to be held in late April, it was the last weekend of April. Apparently, that's been our preferred date for a really long time. Um, and Wait, are you saying a, the Dutch people are consistent and <laughs> doing things uh, the same all, all, all these years? You know, 
It's a breed that, that, that draws people that um, tend to be a little rigid about things at times. <laughs> <laughs> and I admit, I definitely, I have my my parts of that too. Well, as a Dutch breeder, you guys have a lot to do, okay? Not just yeah. in, in body, but you've got a whole marking thing, which is, it's a lot to pull off. We like straight lines and things placed exactly right. <laughs> and so it was a February issue. It was the show was to be held in late April. It said, I realize that your young people won't have too much notice of this show, but bring them and their Dutch along. They will need entries to fill these classes. I'm sure no one will object if the judge is just a little bit lenient. <laughs> well, I don't think we could say that today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Um, and I did mention in the names of um, all those kids that were helping as co-superintendents and co-secretaries, um, there was a Gary Lewis and a Mike Adams. Those were not the Gary Lewis from Tennessee and the Mike Adams from Ohio that we uh, know I was going to ask you. Okay. Those guys are a little bit younger. <laughs> they were either not born or very young when this show was held. So just some kind of common names. In the March issue, um, some more publicity for the National Dutch Show. They had just received Barbara a word from Barbara Walker that Glenn Carr would be judging the youth show. He is a young man who just received his judging license at the beginning of 1966. Prior to that time, he had been a KV judge. I did not know that. You didn't know that? I didn't. I didn't know that he was wow. a KV judge first. Um, yes. Yes. So, he actually will. He'll say that, that he was doing KVs before he did rabbits. Yeah. So they said the Ohio State Dutch Club is proud to have the services of this young man. And we present him to you as one of the real good new young judges. Look <laughs> wow, him over. Amazing. <laughs> um, then um, in the May issue, there were the results of the National Dutch Show. There were 222 rabbits, I believe, shown in open um, with a black winning best of breed. In that doesn't sound like very many. Um, I think it was pretty good for the time. Um, really? it's, it's not that many now. Um, how but, many did you have, uh, at this NDS? Oh gosh, I would have to look, but seven to 800 yeah, exactly. for, wow, for okay. open is, is about average for us. Um, and, and two to said, 300 in youth. We were a little down in youth this year, but it's, it's kind of one of those years where things are in a bit of a lull. Um, you know, there are some kids that have just bumped up to open and you know how it is when you have a lot of kids that are really competitive, they're older, a lot of times younger kids don't get in right away because they think they can't compete. So, you know, breeds kind of ebb and flow like that in youth. Definitely. Um, but we have a lot of younger kids getting in uh, who did well at the show. So I think we're going to see those numbers come right back up again. Exciting. In the youth show in 1967, at the very first, there were 77 Dutch shown. Um, best and best opposite, I think, were won by blacks. The show report's a little difficult to read. I'm not always quite, quite sure what it's saying here. It's kind of <laughs> in a list, um, but it looks like a black senior doe was best of breed. Um, and then let's see. Um, oh no, it looks like best opposite was a steel. Interesting. Um, yeah. What varieties then, were recognized back then? Do you know? Um, that's a good question. It was uh, the the original six that were recognized when I began: black, blue, chocolate, tort, steel, and gray. Um, and they were shown in this order, which they are still at national shows. That's another thing we're kind of particular about. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> chins had not come in yet. In these issues, interestingly enough, there is some discussion about the recently departed AOC class, which was any other color. And people talked about how they liked to raise and show blue fawns, lilacs, blue grays, and things of that nature. 
Um, I don't, I've heard of this. I, I'm going to have to dig in a little bit more to see, you know, what this class was about when it was eliminated. But um, the recognized varieties at the time were the six, black, blue, chocolate, tortoise, steel, and gray. And that was um, consistent up until the chins joined us in 2013 was when they passed their last showing. So just a nod back to that um, AOC class, that was actually part of the the sanctioned National Dutch Show, right? Um, You know, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was part of the National Show, if it was part of local shows. I don't know if those rabbits were eligible to compete for best of breed. Um, Since the late 90s, we've had an AOV fun class at the National Dutch Show where people bring these colors that they get. It's very common to see... Um, golds, lilacs, blue steels, blue grays. Sometimes you see a chocolate steel. There are some harlequins out there running around. Um, chins were shown in the AOV class before they were recognized. Um, so it's still a fun class, but I don't really know if it was more than that um, hmm. at other shows or not. I, and if anyone out there knows, uh, tell us. We would love to know. Yeah, we would we'd love, love to know. To share it um, with everyone. Because that AOV class, I, n- I mean, I don't raise Dutch. I've never raised Dutch. But th- that's if you talk to Dutch people that go back to the NDS, the National Dutch Show every year, they love that class. And is it held on Friday? Is that true? Yeah, it's judged on Friday night. Um, so, and and so, people love it because yeah. you're right. We do get, you know, stuff pops out, especially, you know, blue steels, lilacs. Those things pop out of regular breeding. Um, blue steels are actually kind of sought after to produce good steel color. Typically, the best colored steels carry dilute because it just tones down the um, potential brassiness of the ticking a little bit. Interesting. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's a fun class and people like it. They enjoy it. And, you know, they're really proud when they win. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. There's definitely some, some prestige when you, when you win that AOV class at the NDS, uh, every year. Yeah, absolutely. Cool so there's also a report of the sellers class, which has, um, just been renamed the Dutch auction with some new rules over the past couple of years. But, um, in this sellers class, the high selling, the highest selling rabbits, there were three of them that went for $16, a black senior doe sold by Don Weeks, a black junior buck sold by Tom Shufflebotham, and another black junior buck sold by Tom Shufflebotham, who was a, you know, legendary breeder in, in this breed and really um, established the breed, I believe, um, kind of in the middle of that century to become what it was. I think he was English and imported his originally from England. Um, adjusted for inflation, that's about $127 in today's money. Hmm. The um, highest pair sold was a pair of steel juniors sold by the Weinharts to Larry Bingston, father of ARBA judge Eric Bingston, for $29, which was um, about $231 in today's funds. So not too terribly off from what prices have been. Um, what do prices go for today with Dutch at that? at your seller's class. Now you guys call it uh, Dutch auction, right? Yes. Um, they've gone a little bit higher since the rules have changed. Um, it's now something that is kind of more by invitation or rabbits that place in the top five are automatically eligible. Um, so instead of being, you know, for a time people complained that, you know, if you couldn't sell something, people would dump it in the seller's class. <laughs> um, and, and it sometimes was kind of overrun with junior bucks. Um but yeah, since it the rules have changed and it's really become a prestige thing, prices have gone up, which is good for the club. It's good for buyers. Now, the way it works is that 75% of the price goes back to the seller. 25% goes to the youth scholarship. Very cool. Um, 
so so yeah you know it's um it's good for the seller it's good for the club some people always complain about you know that they can't afford rabbits in the auction um but you know usually these sellers are are people who have other animals available too and and the price is maybe a little bit more reflective of hype sometimes um and I know I'm one that I kind of get into those auctions and I've, I've taken home a few rabbits from those, um, even the new uh, format. And, you know, it, would the seller put the price tag on that rabbit normally? No, probably not. But it's fun. It goes for a good cause. And, you know, it's it's enjoyable. It really promotes the breed um, for people to see that kind of demand for the animals. Cool stuff. So that is 1967 in the American Dutch Rabbit Club. And I do want to let everybody know, if you're interested, the ADRC has put a lot of these old uh, Dutch reporters on their website. It's www.dutchrabbit.com. You just go to the menu over on the left side, select Dutch reporters, and you can see some that go even farther back than 1967. That's so cool that the Dutch Club is archiving and making available those those documents because if you want to geek out like like a lot of us like you and I rabbit people love to do um, those websites are really fun to like literally the rabbit hole to go down and and look at things in the past were there old photos as well um, some of them do have photos in them um, not the ones from the sixties um, I think it was probably just I mean you know how it was back then you took the photo you went and got it developed all this cost <laughs> yeah. money you sent it in probably to to copy the newsletters you just like taped it on and ran <laughs> photocopies I don't know um, but yeah some of the ones um, getting a little more towards I haven't been through all of them but there are some in the eighties that have photos. Um, I didn't see any from this particular year, but yeah, that'd be a a fun thing for people to peruse. I love it. I'm going to go do it. Okay. Now we get to move on to our, uh, always fun and interesting segment. That's segment three of every episode. And of course this is episode 13. And just a reminder that episode 13 and 14, we're going to actually, uh, for the first time, Brian and I are going to split the, uh, the special guest. And that special guest today, of course, is none other than our ARBA president, Dr. Chris Hayhow. And I'm going to take this first uh, episode, that's episode 13, and we're going to talk just on a personal level. It's going to be kind of like a meet your ARBA president. And then next week, Brian, is going to come back with episode 14 and talk more about uh, specific stuff, you know, rabbit and KV health. And of course, the the really top, uh, popular topic, which is RHVD2 and um, uh, the updates on that with Dr. Hayhow, as well as you know, the, the pathway towards a vaccine and which everyone's talking about on Facebook and social media. So we're going to get some great updates about that. But we'd like to take this episode to get to know our our Airbnb president. So uh, before we introduce him, I will introduce him with a little bio. And Dr. Chris Hayhow joined the ARBA in September of 1967, and he's been a continuous member for over 50 years. He's an ARBA lifetime member, rabbit registrar, and an all-breed rabbit judge. Previously, he was the ARBA District 9 director, as well as ARBA president beginning back in 1998, and uh, that was two, 2004, again 2006, then to 2012, and 2020 to present. Over the years, his dedication spans creating and chairing the ARBA Rabbit and KV Health Committee, as well as serving numerous other positions. His formal education includes a bachelor's in agriculture, doctor of veterinary medicine, and a PhD from the Ohio State University. His professional career spans private veterinary practice, academia, and the pharmaceutical and biologics industries. In 2003, he authored the book, Care of the Domestic Rabbits. And in 2019, Dr. Hayhow became a member of the esteemed ARB Hall of Fame. Let's everyone welcome Dr. Chris Hayhow to Best in Show podcast. How are you, doctor? I'm good. How are you, Alan? I'm very good. Thank you. Um, Things are 
loosening up here in California, but still not so. Uh, how's it in Ohio uh, for you and coronavirus? Well, the coronavirus situation has definitely taken a positive twist here in the Midwest. There are still some pockets where uh, things are still on the uptick as far as number of cases, but we've had over 50% of the people here in this in, the, in Ohio, at least, that have been vaccinated and more and more are getting vaccinated. And we're, we're within days. In fact, June 2nd's the magic day where we can go out of our houses and not worry about wearing masks everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean that individual businesses can't say that you have to wear a mask, but at least the state's opening things up. So it's, it's very positive for the, for the folks here as we head into summertime. There's a bright light, just like here in California. You're one of the the, la- the later states to, to open the open the doors and the floodgates. And we in California get to open, I think, around June 15th. And we we're all very excited about that. So um, it's been a very interesting year. Uh, and we're going to talk about your, you know, your role as Airbnb president. But being a president during a pandemic certainly has its, its uh, challenges that uh, you probably didn't didn't uh, foresee when you were <laughs> running for this this office a couple of years ago. But uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, we're going to take this episode to get to know you. And uh, a lot of us that are fortunate enough to be judging a lot and going to shows and conventions have really got to know you over the years. And of course, you're so involved. So uh, it's no wonder that uh, a lot of us do get to know you. But there's a lot of people that don't. And you've got a really interesting story about your your past. And my gosh, over 50 years of ARBA continuous membership, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories in there. So tell us, uh, let's begin from the start, you know, um, talk about your early days growing up, where did you grow up? And um, how did you find rabbits? Were you born into a rabbit family? Well, I grew up in southern Ohio. And uh, at, at that time, I lived in the city. And when I was going to summer school, um, I walked by going through an alley and saw a bunch of rabbits, stopped in to meet the person. And the next thing you know, I had a, a wagon full of rabbits and I was on my way and I've been hooked ever since. And that was a few years before I even became a, a continuous ARBA member. In fact, I first got rabbits in 62 and then joined the ARBA continuously then from 67 on. But um, I started in 62 and never looked back. I've had them ever since. Rabbits and guinea pigs both. I had a lot of people don't know. I raised guinea pigs for over 30 years. I showed them in the 60s and, se- and early 70s before I, before I went to college. Uh, but I never, and my kids had them for a long time, but never showed them because I was so involved with the rabbit part of it that I just couldn't put the time forth or I didn't think I could put forth the effort to work on both species at the same time and do it justice. I agree. It's just like having several breeds of rabbits. It's like, you know, you only have so many hours in a day to, to commit. And for a lot of us, some, some people just dedicate themselves to one variety of one breed and that, and that takes up a, a, a fair amount of time. So, you know, to have multiple species is, is, is a big challenge. Um, and I didn't know that you had KVs in the beginning. Um, what breed of KVs or breeds of KVs did you raise? Well, when I first got in them, really, that's back when all we had were Peruvians, Abyssinians, and the Americans, and there weren't any Peruvians around my area, but I had quite a few Americans. We had some fantastic Americans at that time, and some Abbeys. My Abbeys weren't quite as good, but those were the three breeds that were were in the ARBA when I first got in it, and, and the Americans were the ones I liked the best. I had I had quite a few. In fact, I used to sell them to pet shops and stuff. and <laughs> Make a little income as a kid. 
Yep, that was it. It's funny that you mentioned that uh, KVs back then only had a few breeds. We interviewed Gene Gillespie a few episodes ago, and you know he's a, a both a dual licensed Airbnb uh, rabbit and KV judge. And he was talking about in the early days when he was licensed, there were, I think, like three or four breeds. And then it was in the 80s where we saw you know, the uptick in, in the recognition of, of breeds. But it's, it's really hard to imagine uh, the ARBA without 13 breeds, but that's what it was like back then. Well, and it's the same way with rabbits. When I first started showing, uh, I tell everybody the, the big breeds here in Ohio at that time basically were Polish. Polish was the breed. That, that was the breed. If you could win Polish, boy, you had some good ones. We had the Polish. We had New Zealands. We had Champagnes. We had Dutch. And then I had all the wrecks and, and those were really the big breeds. And, and I say big breeds because at that time, if you went to a show and there were 150, 200 rabbits, that was a big show. Wow. And we, and the rabbits only got judged once and it, it, there was no best in show. So everybody focused so much on their breed rather than the shows we have now where I did a show the other day and it was a quad show plus specialties. And, you know, it's a, uh, it's a race to get all the shows done. And so the change from when I first got in it back in the, in this early sixties to now is, is tremendous. You know, we only had a few breeds that people were working on. That doesn't mean that there weren't other breeds recognized, but that was the, the numbers. And I, I say numbers back when I first got in it, most of the old timers that were my mentors, they used to always, I'd say, what'd you bring today? And they said, two. <laughs> they bring their best buck and their best doe. Wow. And that was just the way it was. And they were very, very competitive. And then as it went on, there was sweepstakes and people started showing more and more. But if you knew a lot of the old timers, a lot of them, they only showed two rabbits, their best male and their best female. And they they were pretty, they took it pretty serious. So if you walked into a showroom back then, you saw a lot of rabbits, but you probably also saw a lot more people if the if the ratio of, um, you know, breeders to animals, you know, if people are only showing two or three, you're going to see a lot more people. Was that was that true? That was true. And the, and the other thing is when I first got in it, the the and this is just honest, the men, it was a bunch, most of it was a bunch of old men showing rabbits and the women were in the kitchen. And now it's kind of the other way around. There's a lot of ladies showing rabbits. And the men are in the kitchen. And I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent, but we that's just the observation. But there were a lot more rabbits being shown now than there were back then. And the demographics have changed. And let's face it, there are a lot more small or what we call fancy rabbits now than there were back in the day because a lot of people there was a lived in rural areas and if they weren't going to get a rabbit that was good enough to compete for best of breed or best opposite that have something to eat. So, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And that's not what we see in 2021 in the ARBA. Well, that's an interesting point. And you said that, you know, when you were, um, when you found rabbits and you came home that day with the the wagon full of, of rabbits to your family, um, I, I don't think that most kids today, you know, at that age would, would have that opportunity to just kind of pass by some rabbits for sale and be able to pick them up. So did you find that back then, even if people weren't showing rabbits, that, that rabbits were at least, um, maybe more popular as a, maybe a subsistence, you know, backyard farming way, way to, you know, feed the family, uh, a thing that, that we don't see today. Was that more popular regardless of whether you're showing rabbits or not? Oh, absolutely. It was. In fact, I used to be one of those kids where I'd trade 
two rabbits for a goat and a duck. I mean, I was, I knew lots of people that had animals and we were trading stuff around all the time. And, you know, let's face it. I, I told somebody the other day, I still remember a 50 pound bag of rabbit food was a dollar 44 and entry used to be a quarter and 50 cents. In fact, I pulled a thing the other day from the 71 convention in Albuquerque, um, New Mexico entry fee was a buck and a half. Oh my God. Can so you imagine? <laughs> th- things are very different. And, you know, back in those days, if you could get five, $10 for a rabbit, that was, that was big money. And every once in a while you'd see somebody getting 25 or $50. So, you know, t- times have changed. And let's be honest, back when I first got in it, people, you couldn't afford to keep around a whole bunch of pets if you weren't going to have something to do with them. And, People ate more of them back then. So, the rabbits today, you know, when we travel internationally um, and we, we speak to people, and, you know, rabbits are a luxury to most, for most outsiders looking into, you know, our society, not here in the United States, but, but um, rabbits really are a luxury. And they, they probably weren't back then. They were more of a, of a practical means of, you know, feeding the family or making a little bit of income. Oh, absolutely. And I, I know lots of people that, you know, Back in the day, they'd get hay from the field and throw an ear of corn in there, and the rabbits would make it. And when they were big enough, they'd have something to eat. Otherwise, they weren't. They couldn't afford pellets and balanced diets and stuff. So and all the fancy conditioners that we have today—that was that was not not around. No, those weren't even thought of at the time. And and you know, if you look at some of the pictures from the rabbits years ago, you wonder based on what I just said and how some of the guys fed, how they ever got any condition on them. It's, it's truly amazing. And, and, and so the leap we've made from back in the twenties, thirties, forties, you know, to where we are today, genetically and nutritionally with our animals is, is it's a credit to everyone. And it's, it's truly amazing where the associations come from. So let's go back to that day. You, you come home with that wagon full of rabbits. You know, today, if a kid came home with a wagon full of rabbits, mom and dad would probably be, you know, a little alarmed. Um, but, you know, a, a nod to what you just said about the culture in our society back then. How did your family take you coming home with a wagon full of rabbits for the first time? Well, I can't say is my my mother was real happy about it, but I right away, right away started getting some lumber. I lived across from a place that had some wood laying around and got some chicken wire and put some cages together. And the next thing you know, I had even more because once you have rabbits and you're buying feed for them and people see you, then they want to see what you got. And the next thing you know, you're trading them around and it wasn't too long till I had several hundred of them. So <laughs> yeah, you know, that's you, just the way it used to be. And, or at least it was for me. So I think maybe the modern day take on you coming home with a wagon full of rabbits is that kid at the rabbit show that buys way too many raffle tickets without telling his mom and then has subsequently won half of the entire raffle, which is all live rabbits. I've been there and done that when I was younger. (laughs) Same way with the guinea pigs. I used to raise guinea pigs in my basement and I can tell you they reproduce rather quickly if you don't watch things. (laughs) Especially even with a 60 day gestation because they're a colony animal, they, they, their breeding habits are, are pretty prolific, right? Yep. And I would sell them to pet shops and I'd reach in and pull out whatever color they wanted. And here we go. And <laughs> it, it, same way with the rabbits. I I was around people that would 
come and trade all the time, whatever color you wanted or breed. And, you know, cause I didn't know much about the breeds when I started. And next thing you know, we had lots of rabbits. So you probably learned a bit about color genetics back then. If you're, you know, if you realize that there's a demand for certain colors that, you know, might fetch you a little more uh, profit from the pet store, you learned which, which colors and varieties worked better to, you know, come up with the next generation that you could sell. Is that, is that something that maybe interests you in the beginning as well? Oh, absolutely. And, and I got involved early on with the Rex because I like the fur on them, but you found out right away that the, at the fur industry, because there used to be a, a market for the coats, for the pelts. And the, the folks at that time wanted them, you know, certain colors because they were better to, for them to, um, dye and to, to further process and stuff. So. Where were those pelts going? Were they processed here in the United States in a in a sort of industry, or were they shipped overseas? They were shipped overseas. Interesting. It's it's just, yep. it's they were shipped overseas. At least at that time, it's late, something you don't even 60s, talk about. Anymore. Early seventies is when I did it the most. Interesting. It's I mean it's the pelts are their their topic. I mean we we heard about it in the nineties and the early two thousands, but it was the campaign against you know live animals for the use in pelts. But now people don't even talk about it anymore. It's just like a, it's a it's completely a dead industry in the United States, but. It's just like a mute, mute subject. So strange. How yeah, the, how it's I, I don't even know if there's very many used anymore at all for for coats or anything like that. I think the garment industry is pretty much dried up for for rabbits. I know that they were using um, some pieces for for patches and things for a while, but I I, I I'm not aware of anybody that's making money doing it. Let me put it right. that way. Yeah, it's, it's it has such a negative stigma in our culture. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, because it is a byproduct of, you know, processing rabbits, you know, it's not like we're just, you know, using rabbits to, to solely, um, yield the hide. It's, you know, the rabbits probably processed and, and eaten as well. And, and most of it is consumed. So or used, yeah. but it has such a stigma. All right. So that's like a, a divergence from your, from your past, but, um, tell us about, um, your mentors. And I, I know that, that Harry Rice was legendary. Harry Rice was, was a, a big, um, factor and you're growing up, you know, talk about him. Tell us about Harry Rice, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but you know, how did he influence you and, and how did he maybe become like family to you back then? Yeah. Well, Harry grew, I grew up, well, I'm trying to tell you exactly. I was down by where he grew, where he was just the other day. He grew up, I grew up about 45 minutes from Harry and he drove, he drove a semi and I lived about Oh, a hundred yards from Route 23 at the time. Now there's a bypass, and he'd just park his car along the road there and jump, or his truck, excuse me, and jump out and would trade rabbits. He'd he was driving all over the country, so he'd bring carrying cases and say, "Here, give me." A, at that time, I had a bunch of wrecks, so I'd breed my, I'd give him my big white Rex does and he'd breed them to his white New Zealand bucks. And then we'd trade rabbits back and forth. And then, you know, helped both of us. I can tell you, I think it helped my Rex a whole lot more than it ever helped his New Zealand's, <laughs> but it, it did help the fur on his rabbits. He said, but I put some bodies on the New Zealand's and, and I had some decent coats at the time. And then Harry would haul me to all the shows and introduce me to everybody and help pull me behind the table to work with him and stuff. So, I mean, that's a very special bond. And I think that, you know, one, a lot of us can relate to, we all go back to our mentors that have been influential. And I think that's the really the, the backbone of the power behind the ARBA and our, our rabbit and KV industry. Um, but, you know, 
I, you and Harry had a, a real special bond. I don't, I don't imagine that Harry had many other many other kids like you that that he took under his wing. Correct? I don't think he did. But he, <laughs> Harry was a Harry was a special kind of guy that everybody liked him. Um, he was an ordinary person at times. He did, you know, if you knew Harry, he was one of those guys that if he thought a rabbit was pretty good, he wasn't against plucking out of white spot or if it had a runny nose and it was good, he'd wipe its nose to help it a little bit and stuff. And I'm not saying he was cheating, but he, you know, he, he knew how to help and he was always, he was always going to help folks and he was always out promoting rabbits. And that, those are the kind of folks that I think we all look up to and, you know, I've tried to help mentor people, but I think Harry, Harry was one of the special ones. So, and he was he was an Airbnb judge, of course. So, was he um, judging a lot back in those days when you were getting your start? Was he pretty popular at the show tables? He was at every show, basically. Hmm. Harry was at every show, and and um, the one thing it's always interesting if if you knew Harry, he never flew in his life. He never, ever got on an airplane. He used to always tell me, he'd say, son, he goes, how do you know when you get on that plane if it's not your time, but it might be the person in front of you? And so we'd we'd just laugh about it. He told me he probably spent over 10 years of his life driving to and from rabbit shows. Wow. And and did he just stay local there in Ohio? I mean, you said he was a a cross-country trucker, so... He probably put some miles on, but if didn't mean did he judge on the West Coast and he, he judged everywhere he could and you know his other buddy you know Bobby Burns from Kentucky those two would get in their in the truck or they'd hop in the car and drive and judge all over the place and sometimes back then you might only be going to get twenty five fifty dollars for judging which wow. you know thinking back. You know, when I first got my driver's license, gas was 35 cents a gallon. So it's not quite like we're seeing these days. So the costs were a little less. I don't know if they were making any money judging rabbits. I don't know if anybody ever makes money judging rabbits. But Harry, at least anytime he would go, you know, he was known for KO rabbitry. And he would always bring some KO New Zealands to sell and deliver along the way and a few at the show. And I think that's probably how he was making his money judging, if I can say that, but he, he judged all over. And, um, I I know when I was growing up, basically he was at every show. And you mentioned Bobby Burns. Uh, we had Dr. Scott Williamson on our podcast a bit ago and, and Bobby Burns is, is the guy that, that, that doc refers to when he talks about his mentors, because just like you said with Harry, you know, you know, come back behind this table and let me show you something. Uh, I, I think I think Doc's quote was, you know, he says, young man, get back here. I'm going to show you about type and and teach you about type. And just like Harry with you, uh, Bobby Burns had taken him under his wing. So you guys uh, did. Did you know uh, Scott Williamson growing up? Yes. Yeah. Scott had the Dutch and he was he was um, west of where I was. I don't think we showed against each other much. But then when my kids got back and I had Dutch, then I ran across Scott quite a bit. So by that time, though, he was out in California. He would he had graduated from college and was in California teaching. Yeah, he had moved here in the in the late 80s. And then uh, he was actually I don't know if you know, he was my my professor of animal science at Fresno State. I was lucky enough to have him while I was there. And uh, I knew him going into it, but it's one of the reasons why I chose Fresno State because hey, they had a rabbit. They had a rabbit guy as a as a professor <laughs> of animal science, so I, I really lucked out. Yeah, 
Um, what was it like being in that crowd of, of those, of those guys, like the, the boys, you know, you're, you're a young kid. Scott Williamson was a young kid. I imagine that you probably were, were one of the younger ones in that crowd. What was it like to hang out with with those old guys? What did it, older guys, what did it, what did it feel like for you to be in that uh, crowd? Yeah, it was pretty special. I guess at the time you just never thought about it thinking now it was pretty, it was pretty darn neat. Um, but those guys, none of them had big egos. That's the one thing I remember, you know, you'd, you'd go places and uh, whether it was, you know, Joe Frizzell or any, any of these guys, they, none of them had big egos or anything. And you were just there with them and one of the guys and they'd always look out for you and, you know, make you feel special. And they always had wonderful stories. I mean, they, you know, I could sit and tell stories all day about them. And, um, but they always made you made you feel like you were part of the, the group and they're always trying to help educate you and, and help you do better. I, I still remember a couple times where those guys that, and then I ended up doing it for some folks when you maybe didn't have very good animals that give, after they'd win, they'd give them to you. And they'd say, I want something back when you get something better. And then you'd do that for them and stuff. And I don't know how many people do that these days, but back years ago, that, that was the big, a big thing. You know, it was just, I call them fanciers um, because everybody was trying to make the breed better. And I'm not sure how many people appreciate that nowadays because when you see rat people paying 500, 750, a thousand up for rabbits, if they don't get a winner right away, then they, they feel like somebody took them or something, you know? So back in the day, a lot of times people didn't want money. That's a here you take them and you, see what you can do with them and get me something else back. And that, that was kind of how those guys were. That's an interesting point. So almost like, um, you know, their philosophy that, that, that key ingredient to the fancier side, which is to make rabbits better or caveys better. An ingredient was that to, was to promote that, you know, that continuous breeding in other people so that they were trying at the same game. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and let's face it, that, that, some of us knew more than others. And, you know, it took me a while to figure out some of the things, but they were always funneling me some good rabbits and I'd funnel them stuff back. And sometimes you feel like you gave them something better. And sometimes they gave you something better. So it all worked out in the end, but I, 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 that's one thing I miss that I don't see. I'm not saying it doesn't go on in the ARBA like it used to, but I think there was more of that collegiality and what can we do to help the breed rather than how do I win every show and not give anybody a chance because I've got the best rabbits. And Right. But I think that maybe do you agree with this, that then and now, regardless of what the, you know, the, the pathway to that is, or maybe the, the ultimate name is that there still is that sense of ARBA or what I call rabbit family. Did, did you feel that back then too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and you had a family. I, I believe you had a lot of uh, siblings, correct? So yeah. you had a physical family, a biological family. But um, tell us the difference between, you know, your family and then your rabbit family back then. Well, for me, I was really the only one that got too excited about the rabbits in my family for, I think, the rest of my family thought they were taking up space in the garage in the backyard. I know my big brother thought that the car should go in the garage, but the garage was full of rabbit cages. In fact, I had them three and four decked for a while. And 
you weren't going to get a, a car in there. And um, so I was basically the only one in the family that, that at least my, when I grew up, that did much with the rabbits. I can tell you then when I got married, my kids, they, they all wanted rabbits. And my son, then I quit doing the Dutch and he started in on the Dutch. And um, my daughter had English Angoras and the mini lops. We, and we, um, we did that for a while. We raised dwarfs. My daughter raised dwarfs for a while, but anybody that's raised dwarfs and you see the peanuts, the young kids can't <laughs> handle that very well when, a lot of them are, are not going to make it. And so we, we, we got rid of the dwarfs right away because she, she didn't like seeing those little babies die, if you know what I mean. So. They are a heartbreaker. But my, my kids thoroughly enjoyed the, the hobby. And, you know, I, someday I think they may get the rabbits back again. But right now they're at, they're at a point in their careers where that's not, that's not going to happen. So. But it looks like, uh, well, we'll talk about the, you know, your vision on the ARBA, but I don't think this, this rabbit and KV industry is going anywhere. It's not going to, not going to disappear anytime soon. So rabbits will always, rabbits, gabies will always be there um, when, when people come back to it. And we've seen yeah. so many people over the years do come back to it. Um, so you, of course, you're an ARBA licensed judge. Uh, tell us about that, that pathway and what inspired you to become a judge and, and when did you do so? Yeah, I, um, well, it goes back to good old Harry Rice again and, and um, at that time, I still remember getting my, I took my registrar's test. I still remember in Coshocton, Ohio, under Jeannie Maddox. And at that time, there were only a handful of questions. I remember I walked in that day, hadn't even thought anything about it. And Jeannie says, here, you're going to take your registrar's test today. And I, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I was just a young kid at the time. And I took my test and I thought, well, I'll get my judge's license. Uh, a couple years later, and then I, as as time went on, I was behind the table helping, whether it was Joe Frizzell or Harry Rice or whoever, at most of the shows after my rabbits were done being judged, or, or whether even if I didn't show and I rode with one of them, then uh, I was going to get my judge's license. I still remember back in 73, and that's when I graduated from high school and went to college, and I thought, I don't have any business getting a judge's license while I'm going to college because at that time I thought I was going to you know go on to be a veterinarian which I ultimately did so I waited until after I had all my undergraduate my veterinary degree done before then I went back and and got my judge's license and I think thinking back it was probably a good thing because I didn't have the time to put in um, to study all the breeds. I, at that time, I'd raised virtually every breed in the standard. But when you're away from it for a little while, you need to brush back up. And so I was able to do that and then then take the test. And, and I think for me, I always enjoyed handling quality animals and comparing them. And, you know, I think that's the that's if you're a judge and you don't like to handle animals, you don't like to interact with people, you're not going to be very happy or very successful because a lot of people think judges make good money. But if you start thinking about how many hours it takes you to drive to a show, you judge all day and you drive home. Um, it's not quite as glamorous when you see it maybe that way, because you're a judge, you know what I mean, but I, I just thoroughly enjoy it. And I've done it for years and years and I've judged over a hundred shows in a year and I would never tell anybody <laughs> to do that again, but 
I did it. And in fact, last year I did over 40 shows, even wow. with the pandemic. So amazing. Way more know, than I did. I'll tell you. Yeah. yeah it is a, well, it is a labor of love. Yeah. And so, I, but I thoroughly enjoy it because you get the, the big thing for me is besides interacting with the people is you get to see the quality of animals in different parts of the country. And that's one thing I'm not sure every exhibitor appreciates because there's pockets of quality animals for different breeds as you move around. And, you know, just like here in Ohio, the breed that jumps out at me is, is Dutch. We've got some of the best Dutch here and between Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Indiana and Kentucky. You come to a show with your Dutch in this area, and you better have your, your shoes strapped on and your belt tight because it's it's not going to be a walk in the park and it's not that way in every all over the country and same way with other breeds you know there's there's areas where there's pockets where their people are super super competitive and that's the part i think as the judges that that makes it fun well and that probably reminds you of your past too when you go, go back to that fancier uh sort of character that uh, you have real fanciers in in dutch if you're gonna use that as an example which i think is a good one in, in that part of the country because i mean the national dutch show was just in ohio and i mean let's face it the national dutch show is oftentimes in that part of the in that part of the country because it's such a hotbed for for quality so do you do you kind of relate to that fancier um character when when you look at those those hotbeds or those pockets of of really uh dedicated breeders or, or fanciers Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and those are the people that I think they have the best sportsmanship also because it's, and, and I'm not trying to say it's easier, but let's face it. If you're raising a small rabbit that just has to have a good top line and a finished coat, that's a whole lot different ball game than raising a rabbit that's got to have a a good body, a finished coat, and oh, by the way, a whole bunch of good markings. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, of course, my counterpart here is Bryony, and she's always talking about uh, it's there. It's a Dutch and Mark breeds are a whole different level of of animal than than yeah, as you say, a, a top line and a good coat of fur. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's easy either. I just I just know if you're raising you know English spots and Rhinelanders, Checker Giants, you know Dutch, any of these marked breeds. I just think those are the people that are, I call them more the fanciers and I'm not saying they're better breeders or anything, but they tend to be more patient, I think, or that's my opinion. Most of them, they're, they're, they're just a little more dedicated maybe too, because it's so darn hard to get a good one, you know? Well, let's talk about Dutch. I mean, we're going to talk about breeds that you've raised in the past, but you know, when I think about Dr. Chris Ahau, I think of Dutch. So when did, when were you first exposed to Dutch and and what drew you to Dutch and what has kept you dedicated to the breed all these years later? Uh, That's a really good question. Uh, Mike, I got my first Dutch in, in 67 and I, and I saw him, I had a buddy of mine um, that had some, and he had some blue Dutch at the time. And I thought, well, those are pretty neat. And I couldn't get any from anybody, but I got some tort Dutch and I thought they were the neatest and best in the world. And if anybody that's listening to this knows what tort Dutch used to look like, that's what mine were. Narrow heads, long ears, long, narrow body. And that was the tort Dutch back in the day that I had, but I thought they were wonderful. And um, then I got some better ones and, you know, through the years, I, I, I think 
between the the blacks and the blues are the ones that are that I've enjoyed the most. But you know, my first Dutch was were, were torts, and a lot of people don't know that. But uh, they weren't very competitive, and they weren't very good. But I liked them. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Scott Williamson's first Dutch were tort. That's what he picked up at the fair as a young man, and. And I think Brian, maybe her first Dutch was a tort too. So there must be something about the tort variety that, that draws people in. <laughs> well, it's, I it's can tell you, way. I had them for years when I lived in Nebraska. And I told everybody when I got a good one that could beat my blacks and blues, I'd show it. Hmm. And I never showed them. <laughs> I, couldn't get, I couldn't get them better. And I, I guess that's shame on me. But you know how it goes. There, It's... Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the fanciers that have them now, and that's a variety, the Tort Dutch now have come so far. And they're so much better than they used to be type-wise. And, you know, we've still got some color issues at times. But type-wise, that variety has just made tremendous strides. It's still one of the more popular ones when I, whenever I judge Dutch, the, out here in California especially, we, we see lots of Tort Dutch. And uh, as you noted on the color, a spectrum of color, but – um, they, they certainly are a competitive variety and oftentimes even for breed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go back to your, um, you know, your, 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 um, your university side and your, your professional career. What uh, inspired you to pursue a degree in veterinary medicine? Well, I always liked working with animals. And when I went to, um, undergrad at Ohio state at the time I was in chemistry department and I was working milking cows at the dairy to help supplement my income a little bit. You know, I was work studying all that. And next thing you know, I thought, well, I want to be a veterinarian and I'm going to, I like dairy cows and stuff. And in the meantime, I also liked the, I liked horses. So I did a lot of standard bread work. And the next thing you know, I, Ended up in vet school, and then I had my own vet practice for almost 10 years. So Amazing. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of kids we see in, in, in the ARBA that are showing rabbits, that if you ask them, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? A lot of kids say that they want to become a veterinarian. So what was it like for you back then being a rabbit kid? Because rabbits were your exposure to animal, you know, rabbits and KVs first and foremost. Um, what was it like being a rabbit kid back then in vet school? And and what advice would you give to kids today that, that are rabbit or KV kids that want to go on? Well, I, no, that's a great question. I, I can tell you this. There were two people in my vet class. In fact, I still remember one of them, Rob Morrow, who lived up by Youngstown. I haven't seen Rob for years. And I used to go to his, he had a trailer just outside where um, the Ohio Mini Convention's held. And he had rabbits and ducks inside his trailer. <laughs> and it was rather interesting. And you can imagine what it smelled like. But um, there was, there were three people in my vet school class, um, that had rabbits and guinea pigs. So I wasn't the only one, but we were the minority, but I can tell you it was a good exposure because when you started doing some of the physiology and the anatomy and things like that, you know, doing necropsies on animals, cutting them open or knowing some of the diseases they get sure helped in some of the training and gave you, you know, a, a heads up to some of the other people. Now, we didn't get much training um, per se on rabbits and guinea pigs in vet school. It was more, these are, the, these are the infectious agents. And oh, by the way, they cause a disease in rabbits or they cause this disease in guinea pigs and 
and things like that. So, and when it's it's kind of amazing because rabbits and caveus are a lab animal. So behind the scenes, they're probably used in a lot of the research and and studies that 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 vet students across the country or world are are studying. Is that? Oh, absolutely. They're used in a tremendous number of studies. In fact, when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, after I, you know, after I got out of vet school and practiced for 10 years and I went back and got a Ph.D., I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years. And um, I was the attending vet at a couple of the pharmaceutical companies. And it's, it was amazing how many animals we had to use for for some of the studies and things to um uh, to get products licensed and stuff. And, and luckily during the, the time I was there, the number of animals used went way down because we were able to find alternate models. So we were, maybe some of it was more an, an in vitro, you know, a benchtop assay rather than an in vivo or an animal test. So we cut down the number that were used, but still rabbits and guinea pigs are a very um, important part of the the drug and the uh, vaccine approval process. And I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but um, while we're on this topic of lab animals, I mean, you you were one of the proponents behind the minor use of minor species, uh, which went before uh, you lobbied before Congress, correct? I'm going to talk about mums and, and when that was and, and how it affected or how it relates to what we just talked about. Yeah, when, when I was in the pharmaceutical industry back in the early 90s, I got involved with, at that time, it was the... Um, NRSP7, that it was really the orphan drug program. And I went before um, FDA and and gave a couple talks. And then um, as I stayed in the pharmaceutical industry and I worked for a couple companies that were very supportive of my interest in the rabbit and minor species, you know, cavies also trying to get some products approved, um, that's when this mums thing came along. And, and that was once again, like a, an orphan drug deal because um, what they tried to do, well, as you can appreciate, if you're a big pharmaceutical company, if you're not making millions of dollars doing something, then probably you're not going to do it. Or if you do it, it may be a liability because if something adverse happens, you're going to get sued. So what the mums bill did, and we got it passed, I want to say in 03, it finally got passed. And, and, and I, I don't want to take total credit for it because at that time, you know, I still remember one of the first meetings we had in Chicago and Glenn Carr, who at that time was the ARBA executive director, I got him to attend the meeting with me and he was very supportive. And then when we went before Congress um, to meet with some of the um, lobbyists and stuff, Mary Louise Cowan from Maine was a tremendous, tremendous supporter that helped get it done. And and um, and subsequent to that, then I represented the rabbit and cavey folks a couple times and went and gave them updates and things. And the, and the mums bill itself, what it was, what it was designed to do was to allow existing data from other species to be used to allow approval for some of these drugs in a minor species such as rabbits or guinea pigs without making a company go through the whole drug approval process. 
So what they did was, and they came up with what they called an index, which was a list of drugs that could be used in chuckers or pheasants or tilapia, you know, a whole bunch of fish and stuff. So that that's that was the genesis of it. And and I wish there were more support and more uh, money going that way now to help continue it. It's still there's still a minor use, minor species. Um, coalition. There's still a department in the FDA. And um, I just think it it's something that could be better, but I think it's a feather in the ARBA's cap that we were involved in in it early on and, and there was benefit there. And I, I'm not going to take away from um, episode 14 where Brian is going to talk to you more about rabbit and KV health with a, a special nod to RHDV2 and of course, you know, vaccine, but this, this does relate to what you're talking about now that, you know, those, those early measures that you were involved in did help us, you know, position the ARBA and the rabbit show industry um, for potential, you know, vaccines, correct? Oh, absolutely. Because we have some credibility, you know, they know that um, we know, we know what our industry is. We know what we can bring to the table and they know we're, we know we're going to be logical and and use uh, some good scientific rigor when we're when we're talking about these things. I mean, I know it's it's one of your goals, and and Eric Stewart talks about it often. You know, it's it's to make the ARBA that that go to that resource, that respected global spot for as a respected you know hub for rabbit and KV. Uh, knowledge, whether it's, you know, on the on the health level or management or, you know, practical care and, and, and upkeep. And that is, I believe, one of your one of your foundations, one of your pillars, correct? Absolutely. In fact, just just last week, we had a uh, board discussion with uh, the representative f- for rabbits for USDA. We had a uh, a very nice meeting and to talk about where we're at now with rabbit hemorrhagic disease and where we're going and um, what, what the future may be. In fact, I, we were invited, I've been personally invited to serve on a, on a committee now to decide how the ARBA can assist in education of uh, veterinarians in the next year or so potentially on how to handle future outbreaks of rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus too. So I think that's very exciting that they, that we're at the table. That is incredible. I didn't know that that was going on um, behind the scenes. And I mean, you're a modest guy, but I'm going to, I'll speak for, I'm going to speak about you. Like this, we would not be, ARBA would not be in that position had it not been for your guidance and dedication over the years, because to pivot us in that position to be an authoritative figure. I mean, I didn't even realize that, like you just said, that, <laughs> that the ARBA is going to be potentially used as a, as a go-to source in teaching veterinarians about RHDV2 and, and rabbit and KB help. And that, that's, that's an incredible move for our Airbnb and for our industry and to have us as the, the show rabbit industry behind that. It's, it's remarkable. Thank you for everything you've done because that sets us all up for a very bright future. Hopefully um, it, it certainly doesn't put us in a, in a negative at all. Um, but it, it, it really highlights the dedication you've put, put there and, and again, positions us for a really bright future. So thank you. No, I, I think it's a good thing. I don't know what the final outcome is going to be, but I, I I don't see a negative for the ARBA. Exactly. Yeah, I see a whole bunch us. of positives, and 
and you always want to be out in front of stuff. And that fact, that was one of my statements the other day when, when I was discussing some things with them, I'd say, we want to be part of the solution. We don't want to get to the end and, and find we were part of the problem. Right. And I'm sure you've, over the years, you mentioned a, a number of kind of niche market um, animal species in our country, whether it's tilapia or or chukers or pheasants. I'm sure over the years you've seen the wrong way to go about pivoting a niche market industry uh, when it comes to things like this. When when you know when things let's say hit the fan and you really need help, um, if you go about it wrong, you're going to be discarded by by the authorities that ultimately make the decisions about whether it's vaccines or or showing rabbits or travel and and down to health certificates. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to be out front of it. You don't want to, you don't want to play catch up. That's always a bad position to be in. So let's talk about your, um, your involvement from the rabbit and KV, um, health side, uh, and farm, pharma or in pharmacology, um, and, and how you applied it to the Airbnb, because I believe you started the first rabbit and KV health committee, correct? Correct. And what were, what was your premise behind that? When did you do it? And, um, how has that evolved over the years? Well, no, that's a that's a great question. It, it first, some of it went clear back to I still remember Mary Louise Cowan had our R and D committee at the time, and the R and D committee was focused on in the uh, early to mid nineties more on trying to give out. They were generating some tremendous amount of money. And we were focused on trying to um, give out grant awards, which is very nice. Unfortunately, as the years have gone on, some of the amounts of money we had to give out weren't going to be able to help solve some of the problems we were seeing. And at the time, at least for myself, I was feeling a tremendous number of questions and people were having problems in their herd and I herds and I thought the best thing we can do is have a committee of people that are interested in rabbit health to try to be a sounding board and initially what I thought we would probably do is gather information and provide updates and say x percent of the people think diarrheas are the most important problem and other people say ventilation or respiratory diseases and all that and what it quickly, when we made the Rabbit and Health, KB Health Committee, what it quickly we found out was it was more a management committee, if I can say that, because people would have problems. They'd, they'd call whoever was on the committee at the time, and I was on for a while, was how do I fix this problem, which was a tremendous service for the membership. I mean, it truly was. And you know how things go. Some people would do or take your advice and some didn't, but at least at least we had a sounding board for the membership to get help, if you know what I mean. So that's where that's where that started. And in the meantime, then the Rabbit and KB Health Committee or the uh, R&D Committee, excuse me, was able to focus more on fundraising and grants. And we took the health part of it and gave that to another group. And over the years, what are some of the the things that that committee has pulled off? Because I just um, the latest copy of Domestic Rabbits magazine just came, and there is always an excellent article in there dedicated to something very specific, poignant, and relatable um, that that we as breeders are going through, whether it's rabbits or or KVs. And um, I just <clears throat> pulled open the 
this issue today. And I was, again, there's a beautiful colored uh, portrayal by Dr. Mina from Ohio um, regarding, regarding some interesting internal parasites, which I didn't know related to the rat. Um, so, and I know that when I joined the RBA back in the late nineties, you were the guy writing that. So how did, how did you, you know, uh, disseminate some of your, your knowledge information and, and from your peers and from your industry to the ARBA back then? Well, that's a great question. I can tell you, I had written some, this was back when Oren Reynolds was still the editor of Domestic Rabbits. In fact, Doc Reed was the president at the time. And I wrote articles periodically because I was in the pharmaceutical industry at that time. And then with the unfortunate passing of Doc Reed, Oren Reynolds called me and said, hey, will you write a month or a, a, a health article every issue? And I did that for over 10 years. And then I thought, there's other smart people and people a lot smarter than me that are out there that could write an article. So that's when I tried to get other ARBA uh, veterinarians to write articles. And, and we've had some fantastic contributions through the years. So I, I think it's a tribute to, A, the, the veterinarians in our association and be the editors of Domestic Rabbits magazine for continuing to try to nurture uh, people to continue to write educational articles. And I, I, I think I tell anybody, everybody, every article, you're going to learn something, you know, and I think that's the that's the the wonderful piece of this, that every veterinarian, if you if we all wrote an article on the same subject, we'd all have a different twist to something whether whether we all agree or disagree there's going to be something in there we can all learn and i think that's the that's the wonderful piece of this that you know i wrote like i said i wrote the articles for over 10 years and i and i've written miscellaneous articles since but i tried to to make sure that we had somebody else that if they wanted to contribute they could try to try to be more inclusive and and spread the knowledge around to folks well, and we've seen that we've seen that that your your initial your your natal article uh, spans several veterinarians from from Dr. J. Harais to now Dr. Mina, and I believe others have contributed over the years too. And um, as you mentioned, like it's a, it's a nod to Sandra White and, and and Randy Hall and all of their efforts behind the Domestic Rabbits magazine. It is amazing. It is it is it is worth the membership membership with the ARBA in itself. Um, but every every issue has an excellent article written by someone like you or, or Dr. Mina or Dr. Price in our field that also shows rabbits. So it's, it's incredible. And, uh, and you started all that back in the nineties. And I remember it, what, what was that initial, what was your initial column called? Was it doctor's corner? Doctor's office. Doctor's office. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, relating back then, so when I don't know if you know this, but, uh, I joined the ARBA in 97 and my first ARBA convention was in 1998 in Portland, Oregon. And you had uh, just taken on the role of uh, for your first time as ARBA president. Um, I remember you at the ARBA banquet in Portland and you gave uh, Cindy Wickheiser the, uh, the, you bestowed upon her the induction into the ARBA hall of fame. Um, yeah. What was it like in 1998 uh, after, you know, in 98, so you joined in, so you already had 30 years in, in rabbits in the ARBA. What was it like to become the ARBA president back in 1998 for the first time? Uh, that, that's, a, that's really a good question. You know, thinking back, I, I, I always thought I could help the association do better. Um, I, 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 I can think that was it. Every, every 
association I've ever been in in my life, I've tried to contribute somehow, whether that meant financially or physically or running for office. And I just, at at that time in 1998, I thought the best thing I could do because I, for the ARBA was to come in with some fresh ideas as president because I had been on the board. You know, I was director for District 9 um, back in 95, 96 time. And then I moved at that time. I lived in, in um, uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and I moved then to um, Lincoln, Nebraska with my job. And so I was off the board, but I knew what was going on. And I, so I'd already, um, I'd already been, um, had the thought process of getting back on the board somewhere. And then uh, I still remember sitting in a East Lansing, Michigan, and some dear friends said, you better run. And the next thing you know, I was president. So it happened pretty quick. I can tell you that. <laughs> I never look back. I, you know, I fondly think about the days and the people I worked with and stuff. And I, I, I know we did some good things. There were some things that um, where we, we were not as successful, but we sure tried. And I think that that was the message that, you know, we tried. And, and same way now, when I came back as president um, and I told the board, we, I made some major changes on some committees and I said, if these are successful, great. We all take credit. If they're not, then we'll make changes and I'll take credit for it not working. So that's just the way you have to do it. But I I think my, my um, vision has always been, how do we make the ARBA better for the current members and to continue to retain members and to attract new members? And I think that's the vision we have to have Otherwise, we're going to get passed by because just as everyone knows, this association used to be based on people that lived in the farming areas and out in the country. And now more and more people are in the city and we've got zoning issues and things. So there are, you know, soccer and all these other things for people to do. So we have to embrace all that and figure out how do we continue to make things appealing and rewarding for everybody. And I think that's the challenge we have as an association. That's such a great point. And um, it's one that I've seen traveling to the United Kingdom a few times to the, uh, the, the, their big Bradford show, which is like, you know, the convention equivalent um, in, in the UK. And when you walk in the showroom, it's kind of like how you first described rabbit shows back in the sixties. It's a lot of older men, white hair, lab coats, and you look around and go, where are the kids? Like, where's the next generation? And if you pull any of those guys aside, like Derek Medlock, for example, he's, you know, he's traveled to the United States numerous times. Um, he's a BRC judge, a legendary BRC judge and uh, former standards committee uh, chairman there. You know, you ask him like, hey, what's different about the BRC and, and the ARBA? And he said, we didn't do our job in promoting the next generation. We didn't, um, you know, support the kids. And they're all wondering what's going to happen to their show rabbit industry once they die. Um, and you walk into one of our showrooms and you see, you know, a vibrant amount of, of people from all ages, but particularly a lot of kids and go to a convention. My gosh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very alive with, with young minds. So, um, you know, how do you, 
how do you equate that to you know the future? I mean, maybe I already answered it, but I think we all know the answer. But um, where do you see the ARBA in the next 25 years and the show rabbit and KV industry? In- well, I, I no, that's that's a fantastic question. I don't know if any of us could have ever envisioned what we've lived through in the last year and a half plus with the coronavirus in people and the impact that's had on whether it's the economy, mental health, um, people financially losing their jobs, houses, all those things. And then we've got this threat of rapid hemorrhagic disease virus also out there. So um, I don't know if anybody could have envisioned that. I think, well, I know the ARBA, we've made it through so far in pretty darn good shape financially and our memberships up from what it was a couple years ago. So that piece of it says that we're doing some things good. Can we do continue to do things better? Absolutely. I think we're going to continue to have struggles, but I think as long as we continue to have educational things available for our people, potential members and current members, whether that be um, adults or, or the kids, and, and they think they're getting their money's worth, that rabbits are obviously a little bit cheaper than buying a horse or having a steer for the fair and stuff like that. So I think it's always going to be appealing for a fair type commodity. And I think we just need to continue to be out there and, and beating our drum of what a value we are. And I, I still think the membership is very reasonably priced and our, our entries at our shows is extremely reasonable. And I think we just need to continue to have a, a positive image for the association and continue to offer the services we have and continue to grow those services. And I think, I think we're going to continue to grow. The one thing I will say is you know, there's a lot of the kids, my kids did the same thing. And, you know, and I did it. I showed rabbits for years, went to school and had the rabbits, but didn't show them while I was in college and then came back to it. And I think, especially with the economy as it is now and and stuff, I think we're going to see, continue to see some people get out. And when the economy picks back up, then they'll get back in again. So I, but I think we've laid the groundwork to for people to know what a what a good hobby this is, how many wonderful people are in it, and that it's it's something that's positive for them um, as a as a break from work and the real world out there, if I can say that. I agree with you. I, I mean, from from my perspective as a small farmer, I've been approached by more people. You know, we show not only rabbits here, but we have angora goats too. I've been approached by more small families that have you know contacted me and said, "Hey, we're leaving the city." And we're taking our family to the country and we are going to, you know, get in touch with our roots. That generation, you know, these parents may have missed it, but they know that it existed. And I think that there's there's a, a driving force behind a lot of people to to kind of go that way. So maybe rabbits will will even prosper with people like that, that that want to, you know, like you did to have some rabbits in the garage, for example, or in the backyard um, as a means of whether it's food or or fiber or show um, or, or maybe all three. Um, yeah. that, that will, that will maybe work in our advantage because, you know, as we, we still, I believe we'll move towards a suburban environment. And unlike what you just said, like, unlike a, an expensive, um, show steer, you can keep some rabbits in your backyard or in your garage, uh, in a suburban environment. 
No, you're exactly right. It's it's. Um, I I think the future of the RBA is very good. I really do, and I and I can tell you this: the previous board under Josh Humphreys as president, and this board now, and with Eric Stewart, our executive director, I can tell you that we did some belt tightening, and we we um, scrimped, and you know we were very frugal. And I think we're going to reap the benefits of that. You know, we're not flush for money, but we're not in dire straits either. And I think when the economy starts opening up more and more, I think we're we're going to be in pretty good shape. And um, I think this association, it's going to be able to bounce back pretty quickly. We're lucky to have you behind us because I know that a lot of us, uh, you know, tag you as a science guy and you certainly are, but you also have a really great business sense. And uh, at this time when we have got RHD and a pandemic, a, a you know, human pandemic going on, we need both someone with science and a business background to to keep us keep us going and not only just keep us afloat, but as you're doing uh, to propel us. And and we are because, as you mentioned, you did 40 shows last year. I mean, this people are still interested in doing this rabbit and cavey thing. Like they want to come back and they still want to show regardless of the struggles that have, that have held them up and cooped them up for the last year. And, and the one thing I will say is the shows that I have done already this year, it is amazing to me how many people have come up to me and said, this is my first show. Tell me what I do. Wow. And, and <laughs> I don't, I, it is truly amazing how many people have said that to me at the show so far this year. Incredible. So uh, it's, um, it's very interesting. So that is we'll really see where it up. goes. Very exciting. Um, just like a, we're, I know I've kept you over an hour already, but I, I want to get um, you off the cuff and you've been doing this for so long. Talk about the Airbnb legends. I, I want to know from, you know, from, from, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be selfish, I want to know from your perspective, past, current, um, you know, no longer with us, whatever, who are the legends behind this this ARBA that were momentous and in in preserving what you just spent the last fifteen minutes talking about in our future? Who were behind that, and and whether they influenced you personally on a on a face to face level, or maybe guys that you, and girls that, that you read about? You know, who were who are those legends? Uh, well, I think Oren Reynolds, number one, he was the man. Tell me, tell uh, us why. I mean, I knew Oren because. When I joined the Airbnb in '97, he was still the editor of Domestic Rabbits magazine. Um, but that was my—that was really my only exposure to him. But he had decades prior to that of of dedication. So, what did Oren do uh, for the Airbnb? Uh, well, I don't, a lot of people don't know that basically our youth organization, as you know today, that was the Oren Reynolds plan. He he wrote that. I did not know he, that. He was the man behind the youth committee um, forming the whole thing. I mean, I'm not saying that the, exactly what we see today was his plan, but he redid the whole thing. He, he, he started Domestic Rabbits magazine in the 70s, um, did it on his card table. I went to his house and saw it, and he did that for years. Um, just Passion and dedication. He he's he was the backbone for years. So he did. He, I talked about the BRC, the British Rabbit Council, and what what they had admittedly didn't do. Oren was thinking about that way back then when he instilled upon the area that there's a youth segment that needs to be part of this for the next generation. Exactly, because I can tell you 
like me, I only ever showed youth once or twice because in Ohio, nobody was showing youth. If you thought you had good enough rabbits, you showed open. That wasn't the case in some parts of the country. And the way the sweepstakes or whatever was set up, most of the country never had a chance. And that's when Oren came in and designed his own, the new system where everything was um, going to make it more fair and encourage kids because it used to be at convention, there were a handful of rabbits in youth. And now you see where we are now. It's taken off where we got several thousand every year in youth. Yeah, it's, so. it's a third or a quarter of the entry for a national uh, ARB convention. Exactly. And when you think about the fact that most of the kids are supposed to be in school. That's that's um, shows you some dedication to some parents and and to the kids too to be able to do their work but still go to a convention. So it was Orrin that set us up for that almost equal opportunity, um, you know, chance for kids to to show in their own sort of system without competing with adults and to succeed and to be highlighted and then to be given credit and to be highlighted for all of their hard work and dedication and, and successes. Exactly. So that, that was, that was the Oren piece. Um, and if you're talking about executive directors, I mean, Jimmy Blythe was the sec at that time, it was a secretary of the ARBA back when, as Glenn Carr used to say, you could, he kept all the memberships on file cards in a, in a shoebox, basically. Oh my God. You know, that's back when the ARBA was not very big and, you know, our office was in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and but he, he held it together. And, you know, then after that, we had Eddie Pfeiffer come in and for a while. And then Glenn Carr was there for about 25 years. And, you know, so those are the people that held us together and got us to now where we have Eric Stewart in there um, doing his piece. Um the, the other, uh, some other icons that I would say is, you know, I grew up around the New Zealand boys. So I knew the, at that time, the, the Harry Rices and the Fibber McGeehees and, you know, those guys were icons and they could do about anything with a rabbit. And, you know, you had um, uh, Tex Thomas come in and, and change the standards committee all around. Not that it was bad, but, Tried to put a little more structure to it, if I can say that. Um, so he he did some great things, and I I I just think back as far as you know, and even um, you know some of the other people. I don't want to leave anybody out. Cindy Wickeiser did some wonderful things through her time as president, and Doc Reed, uh, you know Terry Reed when he was president. So I don't want to leave anybody out. You know, and Connell Addison was our he counted our money for quite 30 years, I want yes, to say. You know, yes, he Donald did. was the man. So, But there's been some wonderful people that were that laid the groundwork for people like me to, to help steer us even farther. And, you know, hopefully we're going to continue and I know we're going to keep growing. So, Well, I appreciate that list and it resonates with, I'm sure, a lot of our audience. And, and I would put you right right in there too, to have given 50 years and had a very, very busy professional career, raised a family, two kids, your beautiful wife, Janora, who uh, she and I have a fiber thing. <laughs> we both love uh, yarn and natural fibers. So we do chat sometimes in text. Uh, you've got a great, 
a great core behind you, but I would totally put you in that in that legendary um, category uh, for everything you've done. And I think that as we face some of the most trying times in our industry with RHDV2 combined with coronavirus, but really RHDV2 and, 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 and the unknowns, the position that you've put the ARB in, the pivoting that we have, and to think that that veterinarian schools are looking at us to teach them uh, through the USDA is, is remarkable. So I really appreciate it. And everyone that's listening appreciates everything you've done for us. And we're very, very lucky to have you as our current president and <laughs> past president as well over, over many years. Well, I, I appreciate it. I've, I've tried to help. I always say that. You know, you mentioned mentoring people earlier. And I think that maybe this is my generation speaking, but some of the mentoring we do today isn't always done you know, face-to-face. It isn't necessarily Bobby Burns or, or Harry Rice pulling kids behind the table, but it's being out there and and disseminating good information, education, resources. Um, there's no doubt you've influenced me and I've never worked behind you, the table with you. Unfortunately, I would still love to, but uh, you have been a driving force and a driving mentor for thousands of people over the years and, and everything you've done. So um, what was it like in, in the Airbnb in 2019 when you were inducted into the Hall of Fame, I mean that was a long overdue in, induction. What was it like to be inducted into the ARB Hall of Fame? And, and currently, you are the 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 I don't say the last member, but you're the current the current inductee. What was it like to be inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2019 um, in Reno? I would say very humbling. I um, you wonder if you deserve it. So. But very appreciative. Well, so. <laughs> doctor, you definitely deserve it. Um, I, I can't tell you, our generation, you know, looks back and, and I'm going to talk about Brian and I, because we're, we're very similar in age group and we grew up in the ARB in the nineties and, and got addicted and, and, and stuck with it. You were always the, uh, a driving force, uh, maybe the driving force uh, for many years uh, and certainly are now. And we are eternally grateful for everything you've done for us. Um, and when you were inducted, I was like, well, this is like long overdue. <laughs> Dr. Hayhouse should have been there a while ago. Um, so congratulations for that. And thank you for everything you've done for not only the ARBA, but our show, Rabbit and KV Industry. Because I, I really think that today we've become more of a global industry than we are just on a continent. That we have outreached far beyond our borders. And the ARBA is a, is a global force when it comes to show rabbits and KVs. And you <laughs> were behind it. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate it, but I think everybody's helped, and I'm I'm just glad we got young people like you and Briny and some of these other folks that are going to carry the torch and continue to be our leaders because you 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 guys are the future and you know it. So it, it's it's a family. <laughs> we still say, you know, whether it becomes more business like or not, it's still that ARBA family, and we're all we are all members of it. Yeah. Um, one last question for you. I've kept you long enough. Um. And I ask everyone this, and Brian, you too, uh, and hypothetically. So just envision your your perfect day at a rabbit show. What would it look like? Tell us. Uh, let's see. Well, I I guess I'd say probably Judge in Flemish or Dutch all day. <laughs> no surprise there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, well, before, you, to- we, before you talk about that, tell us about, because I know the story too, Tell us about Flemish and you and the Cortland, New York show, because I know that that's a that's a that's a that's a day in your life and the, the day of like Dr. Hale that everyone should know. Tell us about that day in Cortland, New York. 
Yeah, I used to get to go up to Harold Mays and, and judge the Flemish all the time for him. And uh, the, the classic, I remember I had 47 Sandy Senior does, and about 40 of them were first place rabbits. Amazing. And everybody was sitting back. If you ever got a chance to do the show, they had what they called the peanut gallery because Harold May was he was a class man. And they had all the chairs up there. And here's all the big time breeders, the Carlo Zappias, John Trone and all of them were sitting back there with their legs crossed and their arms folded watching you. And, and they knew they knew what what I had in the show. And um, I remember getting sounds to the like a hall and thinking, table here in California. <laughs> what's that? Sounds like a hall and lop table here in California when we're judging hall and lops. You've got oh, the hall and lop divas behind the table. That, that, those are present day, uh, the, the Flemish crowd. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So we got all done, and the rabbit that I picked was a gigantic, big old sandy doe of Carlo Zappia, and she ended up best of breed. And I remember to this day, I think that's the greatest class of rabbits I ever judged. And I asked you that I, one time. I did what that Cortland Classic. Oh, I don't know for Harold by ten times, and that that was that was a joy, and and I think Carlo would agree that was a pretty fantastic rabbit. So that was a class to remember and a, and a winning rabbit to remember. Yep. So back good. to that back to that question. So imagine your your perfect day at a rabbit show. So it's it's judging Dutch and Flemish, maybe both or 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 one of one of each. Um, uh, continue on with your with your vision, your hypothetical vision of that perfect show. No, but I think for for me, it, it, I, you know, those are my the two breeds that I think are the most enjoyable for me because if you do Dutch, as I tell everybody, you better have your head screwed on and focused and pay attention because if if you're not and you have classes of 40, 50, I've had over 90 in Dutch classes, you get about half done. If you're not paying attention, you're going to have to start over. So you really got to, you got to be in it when you're doing rabbits like that. But I think for me, it, really judging just about any breed and, and seeing good animals, that, that makes a good day judging and being around all the, the people and and kidding around and joking. And, you know, you, you judge. Some people are uh, a little more friendly when you judge. Some people are talkative. Some people like to identify their rabbits, which isn't a good thing. You're not supposed to do that. But <laughs> But still, I th- I like to have fun with the exhibitors and talk and tell them what I see. And, you know, I think that, that that's a good day. So it's always a better day judging and being at a rabbit show than, than being at work. I can tell you that. So. <laughs> I'm sure after 2020, living on Zoom, you can say that uh, with even more testimony. <laughs> exactly. All right, Dr. Hale, thank you very much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it, uh, you know, getting to know our ARBA president and and to many of us also an ARBA legend. We appreciate everything you've done and taking the time out to to share your your story because it's it's remarkable and it resonates with a lot of us. It certainly resonates with me and um, anyone that's that's found the magic of the ARBA and the, the rabbit and KV show industry. We all we all relate back to those mentors that that took us under their wing when they didn't have to when you know they were older and they were already established and. You know, they didn't they didn't need to to expend that time and, and they did. And it's it's why you're here and it's why a lot of us are here too. So we appreciate those those stories because they are very much like each and every one of ours. Great. Well, I sure appreciate it and uh, thank you for inviting me uh for this discussion. That was a great interview, Alan, and I cannot wait for the second half next week. Um, Dr. Hayhow is our first Hall of Fame member that we're interviewing. 
And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about the awards that the ARBA offers for our members. Obviously, the Hall of Fame is a a great honor for a select few individuals that make a huge, huge impact on our industry. But there's another award out there that's prestigious that probably most of you know someone that may be eligible for. That's called the Distinguished Service Award. And it says the purpose of this award is to recognize those individuals making outstanding contributions to the rabbit and or KV industry at a local, state, or regional level. The nominee need not be a judge or registrar, but an individual who has made a noticeable impact on the industry by the work they have performed. The ARBA wishes to recognize those members deserving of the Distinguished Service Award. Following is a list of general criteria for the issuance of this award. The nominee does not have to meet all of the guidelines as specified to qualify for the award. The criteria includes the nominee is an ARBA member in good standing, has been an ARBA member for at least 10 years, has assisted in organizing a club, all breeder specialty, to promote the industry, has served a club fair or 4-H rabbit and or KV program for at least 15 years, has helped organize or been an active participant in a successful judges conference, has developed a breeder variety that has been of interest and benefit to the ARBA, has helped organize or been an active participant in a successful rabbit and or KV seminar, has donated unselfishly of time, effort, or finances to benefit the rabbit and or KV industry, has served actively as a judge and or registrar in a positive manner to promote the industry, and has performed other outstanding services for the industry. And again, that list is pretty comprehensive, and it states that the nominee is not expected to do all of those things. Um, that would be quite a list. Not everyone's going to, you know, be a judge and bring in a new breed and, you know, do all of these different things. But this is kind of a list of things that um, might, you know, qualify someone, might uh, get people to thinking about who's someone I know in my area who has done these things. And this may be someone that's very well known, or this may be someone who has worked very diligently behind the scenes for many years and maybe isn't really well known outside of their local area. But I would encourage everyone to think about um, whether there's someone that you know that maybe should receive a Distinguished Service Award. The list of award winners is pre- printed in our ARBA handbook every year. And if you read through, you'll, you'll kind of notice that some areas kind of punch above their weight and are, do a little bit better job of nominating their members. Uh, Kansas tends to be one of these. Um, but there are a lot more people out there that are eligible for this award. And, you know, I think we'd all like to see it distributed um, more broadly than maybe it has been and see more applications come through. If you're interested in maybe nominating someone for a Distinguished Service Award, um, you can actually go to the ARBA website under the Printable Forms tab. All the way down at the bottom of that drop-down menu, you see Printable Award Applications. You can click on that, and it will lead you to a copy of the uh, nomination form the uh, information that you'll need walk you through the procedure um, and tells you you know what you need to put in there who you need to return it to um, and the process toward that and these awards are typically given by district directors often it shows um, it's really fun to see uh, nominees and award winners kind of surprised by this sometimes at their local show they don't know it's coming um, so again I would encourage you to Think about someone you know who may be deserving of this award and think about getting one of these applications started for them. I love this topic. And I think that there are so many people that that work and dedicate their lives to the ARBA and they they don't get credit for it. Um, and this award has been in place for a long time and it allows us to, you know, to, to thank these people. And you get, by the way, you get a, a really cool 
a beautiful plaque um, for those for those winners, so they get to hang it on their wall. And it's just it's a very special way to say thank you uh, and uh, for for the dedication and literally the decades that some people put into this. Um, so thanks for those links. Uh, I think that's awesome. And by the way, uh, I have had the pleasure of of nominating some people in the past. And or being involved with it, you know, because a, a committee of people or a group of people can get together and do this too, and to nominate the, um, you know, the uh, the applicant. And uh, if anyone would like an example template, I'm happy to to supply one of the templates that I did for for a previous uh, Distinguished Service Award, so you can kind of see how they're how they're laid out. They're they're not hard, you know. We guys we don't have a lot of shows right now. This is a good time to sit back and maybe some spend some time thanking those that uh, that dedicate so much to our industry. So I'm happy to share those or share that template. And, and on that topic, by the way, uh, we have a, an email address now. So, uh, as everyone knows, or if you try to email me or try to message me on Facebook, I, I don't do messenger. I just, I finally gave it up. I can't do it. <laughs> I really, I just, I just can't do it. It's too disorganized. I get too many messages and it's more like a chit chat. Uh, but we have an email address now. So if you would like to contact either Bryony or I, or both of us, uh, talk about the podcast, give us some suggestions or like, I just offered the uh, the template for uh, an ARBA Distinguished Service Award. You can email us at podcast best in show. That's all spelled out. Podcast best in show at gmail.com. And we will make sure that address is also on Facebook. So best way to get us, podcast best in show at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, comments, positive or negative, and maybe some ideas about uh, how we can improve and maybe some people you uh, think deserving to be on the podcast later on. Yeah, we'd be interested in hearing all of that and also be interested in seeing any historical things that you have. Um, Like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we've kind of focused a lot on the 90s. That's when we got in and that's that's kind of ancient (laughs) history to us. And and actually, you know, before a lot of active people came into the ARBA, but it's certainly not when the ARBA began. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that have some older documents or information that you know, our listeners as well as us would find fascinating. So please feel free to send that to us there as well. And if you need any advice about how to scan things, um, just let me know. You can actually do that with a smartphone now. Um, So yeah, shoot us an email and uh, we'll be asking for more of your input in future episodes. I love it. All right, Brian, I think we are at the end of episode 13. I'm looking really, I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, Dr. Chris Hayhouse's second part and second interview with you next week when you guys dive into rabbit and KV health with uh, special attention to RHDV2 and some updates, including some vaccines. So I can't wait for that. That's going to be episode 14. So make sure you uh, stay tuned for that, guys. And um, it's going to be a good one. As we are concluding every episode now, we've decided to share some quotes. And Bryony, I think you've got a special one for us to uh, end episode 13. Yes. um, Reflecting back to what we just talked about with the Distinguished Service Award and, of course, our Hall of Fame, this one is from Calvin Coolidge, who is famously actually a man of very few words. Um, But he said, no person was ever honored for what he received. Honor has been the reward for what he gave. I love it. Very fitting. So thank you again um, for listening to our first interview with our uh, Hall of Fame member. And again, think about the people that maybe you would like to honor for what they have given to the association. All right. We'll see you next episode 14. And don't forget, everyone, to talk rabbits and talk cavies. It's what we all love doing. And uh, we're thankful and grateful that you are all listening to this podcast and, and doing it along with us because it's something that Brian and I love to do. Have a great day or night wherever you are in the world. This podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association. It does not constitute an official communication of the association.
The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARPA. To learn more about the ARPA, please visit www.arpa.net.